I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk EU digital trade, a go-up, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Hello, this is Trade Guy Scott. Thanks for listening to The Trade Guys. If you are interested in a deeper dive of trade policy or trade politics, there's an opportunity. We are still accepting enrollment for the spring session of The Trade Guys Crash Course in Trade Policy. It's offered May 22nd and 23rd. It's an online course, so you don't need to come to Washington. It's two basically long half days. We start at nine, we end at about one o'clock both days. And it's a great way to get up to, up to date on what's happening and refresh your memory on the, the principles of trade policy and politics in the United States. We'd look forward to seeing you. It's a small group. We cover all the key elements of uh, policy and politics, and we'd love to see you there if you're interested. You can find out more information at CSIS.org. Click on Executive Education. You'll find a description to the program. Thanks. What could be better than that? Well, I get to see the trade guys in person every week and actually not in person. We do a lot of these taped over Zoom, but who's counting? Close enough. Close enough. Guys, we're back in business and and the chips discussion is always one of my favorite discussions. But let's talk about the EU Chips Act and the new semiconductor subsidy race. I want to ask you guys about this and how does, in your view, the EU plan compared to the U.S. Chips and Science Act. Do you like chips, Andrew, because you're thinking potato chips? Or do you like chips because they're... My, my serious weakness is uh, those backyard barbecue chips, man. Whew. Oh, all right. Well, we're not subsidizing those yet. We're not subsidizing yet. The, the silicon chips that make up the microprocessors. I think the Biden administration is taking... This is a welcome, as welcome news. It's a sign that the EU is getting on board the American train of trying to work together in solidarity on making sure that China doesn't dominate the semiconductor sector going forward. They're doing it in some respects in the same way and in, in at least one important respect in a different way. The money is sort of comparable and I think the projects will sort of be comparable. And that's been proposed from the beginning. I think they still have to sort out in Europe how much they're going to spend on on the high end, if you will, the advanced high end chips and development that capability of ma manufacturing capability, and how much they're going to spend on expanding their production capability of what's called legacy chips, the ones that are in your car, in your refrigerator, your toaster, and you know a whole range of of things where size doesn't matter quite as much. Which and it's the bigger market, and it's the it's the area where you'll recall during COVID we had a significant shortage, particularly in the automobile sector. But on the other hand, everybody wants to be cutting edge in the high end. So we'll see what they do. The biggest difference is that they don't handle um, location and content the same way. The United States has a whole bunch of restrictions on uh, you don't get the money unless you promise to do certain things with respect to China or not to do certain things with respect to China. And, you know, the United States has got uh, content by American restrictions uh, 
in, in all of these bills. And the EU has chosen not to go down that path. And it's a more open system that allows them to avoid WTO fights. Maybe there will be one anyway, but I think it'll allow them to avoid WTO fights. They did do one thing, though, that's interesting that the United States did not do in this area. That's a reflection of the nature of the European Union. And that is there's a condition that if you're going to get a you know one of these large program investments, you have to do it in three different jurisdictions in the European Union, which essentially means three countries. And it's classic politics, you know, spread the goodies around. And it's, I think, designed to make sure everything doesn't end up going to the French and the Germans. And, you know, it's kind of reasonable. The United States did not do that. Uh, we don't have quite the same system. And one of the things that people have been commenting on as the United States program begins to roll out is the geographic diversity of some of the spending and the extent to which some of these new things uh, are going into into red states, which doesn't particularly surprise me, but seems to surprise blue state people. I think it's important to step back. Bill identified some of the weaknesses, but let me kind of summarize it. First, you got to reflect on why we're doing this. The reason we're doing this and I'm not criticizing the, the motivation at all, but fab plants that, that manufacture high-end IT chips are not produced in the United States anymore. Most of, the, most of the capacity is in East Asia and South Asia. Why is that? Well, because constructing one of these fabs costs about 50% to 75% more in the United States than it does in, say, Taiwan. Now, this is technology the U.S. developed and led the way in. In fact, uh, Morris Chang, the founder of TSMC, the most successful Taiwanese foundry company, very successful company, he started his career at Texas Instruments. You know, so these are all sort of American technology, but because it, construction costs are much higher here, we have to subsidize in order to get the interest of manufacturers to build the fabs, as they're called here. So the foundries and fabs can be built here, but the reason for the subsidies is because they'll be built elsewhere without them. Now, how can this go wrong? I think in the United States, the most likely way we'll screw it up is with mission creep, right? Because not only do we have we have large subsidies, which offset the higher construction costs, but we added a bunch of conditions. The Department of Commerce had conditions on who we hire and how much childcare we support and those kinds of things. There are also profit sharing requirements. There are restrictions on sharing intellectual property and restrictions on moving content to elsewhere within a firm's operations. So those conditions in and of themselves may add back enough costs that firms become less interested in taking the subsidy in the first place. That was raised actually by TSMC about their Arizona plant just in the last week or so. The Europeans will screw it up differently. The potential for error for them is in bureaucracy. And it, it comes down to basically keeping member states happy Bill mentioned that you have to have three jurisdictions involved in any proposal. And I think that they'll wind up subsidizing things that would have been built anyway, just to meet the location criteria. But it's a much more complicated scheme to get things done. So each of them have their faults. Each of them are trying to offset what is a cost disadvantage to build those facilities. They both have important national security dimensions to them. So we'll see how it goes. One of the elements that's not clear is deconfliction. I think we've talked about this before. There is a danger that they're going to pour, pour an enormous amount of money and we're going to pour an enormous amount of money into plants that build the same thing. And the U.S. government's 
view tends to be not to try to organize competition. But there is a possibility here that, you know, you're going to have two governments essentially creating uh, entities that are going to compete with each other rather than competing with China. This is one of the things the TTC is for, the Trade and Technology Council, to try to provide early warnings, address those issues, and help sort of deconflict that possibility. So we'll see how it rolls out. But I think on the whole, the administration is happy about it because it's a sign that the, the Europeans are see the challenge the same way and are attempting to deal with it the same way. Guys, I want to ask you, is this global semiconductor supply chain going to successfully diversify away from any dependence that it has on China? No. Not likely. <laughs> no. Not likely. Okay. Well, okay. in part, if Europe's goal is to raise its share of the global semiconductor market from 13%, I think it is, to 20%, so, you know, even if they succeed in the goal, which Scott sounds skeptical of, you're still talking about 20%. I think the U.S. will probably end up kind of in the same position, maybe a little bit better than that. But the, that, that's not the point. The point is not to dominate the global marketplace. The point is to avoid vulnerability and avoid dependence in areas that have security implications. Particularly at the most advanced part of the, this technological curve. But you've got to think about China, not just as a place where you can get assembly at scale. China is a huge consumer market for all sorts of electronic devices and automobiles and appliances and the things that use these, uh, these microprocessors. So they're going to be in this business. They're going to be a major share of the business just because of their, their power as a consumer market. So yeah, I, I think we'll fail. I hope we succeed at the high end, which is where the national security arguments are the strongest. This is also an area where mission creep is going to be potentially an issue because, you know, the administration has not been entirely clear about defining what's important and what matters for national security. I mean, they sort of say, well, semiconductors matter. Okay, no argument there. But as we've just been saying, there are semiconductors and there are semiconductors. You know, is it a, a national security issue for the United States? If Ford and GM get most of their semiconductors from China for automobiles, not quite the same thing if you're talking about chips that are going into our jet fighters or into our various you know, missiles or you know the computer systems that the Pentagon uses. And they're not necessarily the same. So where do we draw the lines? You know, I don't think that we're in a situation where you know, our auto industry is going to be composed of 100% American chips going forward. That's not realistic. Do we care? The people that care about sort of economic competitiveness will say, yeah, that matters. But if you're focused only on national security, I think people will say, yeah, you probably should draw the line uh, above that someplace. Got it. Let's go on to another one of my favorite acronyms, AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act. Now, another one of my favorite acronyms, the ITC, has issued a report on AGOA. So in light of this ITC report, what have been some of the successes and failures that they reported out on AGOA? Well, look, AGOA is one of those one of those bright spots in the politics of trade during most of the last 25 years. Bill and I still bear the scars of many sort of brutal, often sharply partisan fights over trade agreements. The one program that always had broad, sincere support on both sides of the aisle was helping Africa. There was a pan-African consciousness that the Congress could appeal to. 
there was a real desire to help Africa do better economically, and trade policy seemed to be one of the tools to use. That's where the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act came from. And it was always, because it had the strong politics behind it, it had high hopes. Where it failed, and, and it, it, it didn't do as much as everybody hoped it would do, which is basically the IDC report said, yes, it was mildly positive uh, for some industries, but it generally didn't have the kind of impact we'd hoped. Something to that, uh, I think that's a fair summary of it. And I think it's because it's, it's a classic preference program that gave African firms an opportunity to ship duty-free apparel to the United States. And it, like all these programs, it's an, an, it's an intellectual ancestor of the generalized system of preferences, which goes back to the 1974 Trade Act. But you got to think about trade in 1974 was very different. First of all, there were high tariffs on a lot of light industrial goods in the 1970s. Shoes and clothing were part of it, but also, you know, corn brooms and all kinds of uh, hand tools, implements, things like that had relatively high tariffs. Second, apparel itself was quite expensive. It was a big part of the family budget, but it was also treated as a job source and protected not only by tariffs, but by quotas that were distributed worldwide by country. So the multi-fiber agreement was behind those uh, quotas. This all went away, you know, frankly, and that's one of the reasons that Goa didn't have the impact it did, is it's not 1974 anymore, all right? Uh, when, when NAFTA was ratified, a lot of light industrial goods all of a sudden had zero tariffs from Mexico or soon, soon after implementation. And so the effective protection is much lower. Second, the apparel industry has modernized to a massive extent, and there are globally competitive producers of apparel. Just read the tags in your t-shirts, okay, or, or what's stamped on them now. There are no tags, fortunately. But the, the countries, the country, exactly, the countries that show up on those lists, on those apparel made-in tags, are the ones that a 10% tariff or 9.5% tariff is just the cost of doing business. So the, it's not as valuable as it once was to get a share of the American apparel market. Africa is far away. It has uh, difficult logistics to the United States. There are a number of other factors involved. But that's the big one. The big one was it was a preference program that probably would have worked great in 1975 and has flamed out. The, just the, the economic incentives are so different now. Now, I think it's not the biggest problem to solve in Africa, and I hope we are looking at the big economic problems in, in Africa, mostly intra-African trade, and looking for ways to help there which is, I think, a better use of everybody's time. But I have a soft spot for AGOA, and I wish it worked better, but there are real reasons it didn't, and it's not the fault of anybody who, who uh, was part of the program. Bill? One of the things it did, though, that, I mean, not as significant as people would like, was it served to encourage investment in the region yes. because it provided an element of, of certainty that you knew, and the fact that it expires periodically, that's uncertainty. But if you were an investor... If you knew, say, for the next eight or 10 years that there were going to be no tariffs on something you were going to make, it's much uh, that's an easier investment decision than if you don't know what's going to happen six months from now. And I think you can argue that one of the consequences of a go up was some uh, modest increase in U.S. investment in the region. That said, there are a lot of reasons why people don't invest in Africa that AGOA can't solve. The biggest one, as far as I'm concerned, which I rant about periodically, is, is corruption and corruption and sort of non-rule of law. And in my experience representing large companies, which are big investors when they decide to invest, you know, what they really, it's, it's not, people think it's, you know, it's about low taxes. And it's not 
I mean, that's not irrelevant, but it's not really just about low taxes. They want to be in places where there's a educated, dedicated, committed workforce, and primarily in countries that are rule of law countries where they know if there's a commercial dispute, and there always is a commercial dispute, that there is a resolution process that is transparent, efficient, and and reasonably objective. That's what they look for. And you don't have that everywhere in Africa. And I think that's a, a significant obstacle. And if you have corrupt management, particularly at the border in the customs service, if you're manufacturing there, you can't get it out without paying bribes, which Americans are not allowed to do because of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Or if you can't get it in without paying a bribe, which Americans are not allowed to do because of the FCPA, that's a significant deterrent. And AGOA really has not done anything about that. And it's a significant hump that I think a number of African countries really have to get over it before you're going to see much more Western investment than you're seeing now. What you do see primarily is in natural resources, beginning with oil, which, as I recall, is the biggest import under AGOA, right. uh, and right. not, despite everybody talking about apparel, it's oil, but also minerals. And you're going to see uh, some boom in African in mineral imports because of batteries and things like that. You know, what is it, 60 or I think more than 70% of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Correct, yes. There's a lot of minerals there, and you're going to see, you know, extraction industry people uh, circling around, and, and they don't have the luxury of picking and choosing where they locate. You know, if you're if you're Procter & Gamble, just to p- take a, a Scott example, you know, you could decide where to put a facility based on, you know, normal economics. If you're in the extractive industry, you have to go where the, where the resource is. You go where the mine is, where the ore deposit is. So you don't have a lot of choice. And if it's in a country where corruption is a big issue, then you're stuck. Uh, and, you know, this is a little bit far-fetched from Ogoa, but it's it's one of the things that I think has consistently got in the way of, uh, you know, more trade with Africa. There are there are a few bright spots, and I, I want to give credit. You know, we tend to think of Africa based on our most recent memory of it. I always thought of Rwanda as the genocide that took place a couple of decades ago. The uh, Houthis and the Tutsis, if I recall. Apparently, Rwanda just scored among the top countries in the World Bank's Doing Business Survey. Okay, the World Bank does an annual survey called Doing Business, which looks at the costs of establishing, operating, and expanding a business. Uh, And usually Singapore and New Zealand come out with the top rankings. Apparently, Rwanda is like in the same class as as New Zealand, which is really clean and efficient government at, at, at its best. So I need to learn more about this, but while AGOA didn't live up to it, the hopes, there's more to Africa than we might, uh, than our current uh, memories or current opinions might suggest. And uh, there's opportunity for improvement. Uh, sure, Rwanda winning this award is a very, or being ranked so highly is a very different place than it was 20, 30 years ago. There's also hope in the, through the creation of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, the AF. Yes. AFCFTA which now I, cl- I think I includes, as of this point, every African nation except for one, which is quite remarkable. It's not the strongest agreement in the world. It has a number of issues like digital issues, for example, were deferred for some later, uh, later discussion. But it's pub- it creates a promise and potential for dealing with one of the biggest problems that they've got, which Scott alluded to, which is intra-Africa trade and intra-Africa infrastructure. Going from one country to another in Africa is complicated. It's getting better, 
But for a long time, not now, but for a long time, if you wanted to fly from, say, Nigeria to Senegal, you had to go to Paris and then come back, you know, because there weren't direct flights. Now that's better. Okay. We're making progress. And the AFCFTA will probably further promote that. And that, in a way, that's potentially the easiest trade, you know, cross border, you get a truck, you know, and move stuff across the border. That's, that's trade. And it's, you know, something that's been lacking. And AGOA doesn't really deal with that. But, uh, you know, wait a few years, we'll see how the African Continental Free Trade Agreement develops that may address those problems. Guys, I want to shift to our final subject of the day. And that is headlines this week about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce coming out against the United States government's approach to digital trade. What about it? All right. There, there are two issues. I'm going to try to be a, a, as lawyerly as a non-lawyer can be. I hope the lawyers in our audience will forgive me for describing it. But the two issues are this. First, the first one is sort of a competition policy or antitrust matter. The, it was triggered by the Digital Markets Act, which is the EU Act, which treats sort of our large platform technology companies, Google, Facebook, the, the big platform companies, they're disproportionately American companies, but they, they are essentially treated like common carriers. They're required to share customer data they, with their competitors. They, they can't bundle services. There's a whole lot of restrictions. Now, that's very much like 1970s antitrust policy in the United States. Well, Europe does these things because it's, their, it's in their interest to give their firms a leg up by regulating the big companies, which happen to be American companies. But we also know that too much stepping on competition is probably bad for uh, innovation. Having said that, what you have is a Federal Trade Commission commissioner and a Justice Department in the U.S., which kind of like the way Europe's doing things. And they, they like things like the Digital Markets Act because they, they prefer what I'd call the 1970s approach of big Maybe bad, but it's least suspect, even if it's not bad. And so we had language in, in antitrust decisions like abuse of dominant position, those kinds of things. were focused on the size of the firm and the concentration of the market rather than the effect on consumers. So the U.S. moved to that more consumer-oriented competitive sort of contestability uh, of the market being the key criteria. Uh, and I, so I, it, we have a couple of U.S. officials who had agencies or had the practice within an agency, in the case of the Justice Department, who just prefer the European approach to this than, than what they can get through the Congress. That's problem one. Problem two has to do with trade agreements. And that is that trade agreements, at least since the Bush 43 administration, have contained competition chapters. And the competition chapter is also pro, pro-competition, but it also... Uh, it, it outlines the need for procedural fairness, and it, it ensures that American firms are treated well under competition investigations in our trading partners. It's come up a lot in Korea, as an example. We have the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. The competition chapter there is one that has protected a number of innovative American firms from difficult and un-American-like judicial settings in competition law. So that is the trade agreement side of it, and in this case, the chamber is upset with both. The chamber is upset with U.S. agencies taking the European side in the Digital Markets Act, but they're, they're also uh, upset with the fact that negotiating objectives of USTR are being shaped by those same agencies and the competition chapter, which in the past has been fully, uh, fully compliant with U.S. law and practice, 
might take a different shape in things like IPEF. So, Bill, what, what did I trigger? <laughs> you said it better than I could, but uh, there, this, has been an, uh, this has been an evolutionary thing. I mean, Scott has got the basic issue right. The Chicago School of Antitrust Thought, which uh, came out of the University of Chicago in, in the 50s, was focused on impact on consumer. And there would be an antitrust violation if you could show that the consumers were worse off as a result of whatever the alleged anti-competitive act was. The European approach has tended to focus more on structure of competition rather than the effect of competition. And it's exactly what Scott said. The European approach is very close to saying big is bad. And that not just the big is bad, but that big is by definition anti-competitive. And so we need to do things to make sure that the big guys don't push everybody else around. And we don't look precisely at whether or not they're doing that and, and whether or not consumers are actually suffering as a result. We sort of assume that that's a bad thing because of their size and their ability to push people around. So I think this is a fight that is not over in, in the United States. And within the Democratic Party, it is like a lot of trade fights, essentially between the center and the left. The left taking the EU approach, the big is bad approach, and the center being more traditional, taking the, the Chicago school approach. Uh, so in that sense, it's a it's a traditional fight. There are elements of it, other elements of it here too. That, I mean, the chamber is also picking up on the idea that what the EU has done in the Digital Marketing Act and the Digital Services Act is pick on American companies. And if you don't have any doubt about, if you have any doubt about that, go to our uh, the Scholzer website and look at the report that we released last November on the cost, we've talked about this before, the cost of compliance with these acts uh, for American companies and also for European companies who are going to have to pay themselves billions of euros just to comply with the regulatory requirements in these acts. Uh, the chamber's upset, though, that it, they allege that the gov- our government is actively over there helping the EU get compliance, which basically means potentially ratting out American companies to the Europeans. And I think that's something that ought to give Americans pause. You would like to think that the American government is defending American companies and not helping somebody else undermine them. And so that's that's part of it. The other part, same argument, it shows up in IPEF. And the chamber is upset about IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, because there's going to be a digital trade section in IPEF, actually in two different pillars. And they some of these same issues show up there in terms of competition policy and on issues like free flow of data and data localization. And the longstanding business position, including the chamber, has been data ought to move and flow freely. And countries ought not to be allowed to localize data, that is, require the data to be stored in that country. And now if you're a bank and you operate globally, you can make a very convincing case of why that's a bad idea and why you need to be able to move your data around. The chamber is worried, with good reason, I might add, I I think, that USTR is pulling back from the traditional U.S. position, which has been pro-free flow of information, anti-data localization, and may be prepared to accept some compromises in that area, uh, particularly uh, recognizing that there may be circumstances where data localization is a good thing. Uh, That is an argument the left in the Democratic Party makes vigorously and it's a classic sort of, once again, left-center debate, uh, which is unresolved. I mean, I think the Chamber's argument on IPEF is well taken, and this is going to continue to be an issue. You recall when the digital language text was originally floated, people who had reviewed it characterized it as USMCA minus. So it was, you know, a pull a pullback 
from existing U.S. agreements. And I think we're heading into a big fight about that going forward. Guys, this has been an amazing discussion as always. Bill, That I don't think that quite qualifies as a rant. I think you know, it was pretty measured. We headed it off at the pass somehow. I am not sure. Yeah, Scott Scott headed it off. But great talking to you guys as always. And hopefully your battle scars from previous trade wars will heal. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.